Job chapter number 3 this morning, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Job chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. In our last message in the book of Job, you might remember that we left him in an ash heap with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they did the right thing by entering into the plight of their friend. But for seven days and seven nights, nobody spoke a word to one another, but rather they cried together. Here in chapter 3, the silence is finally broken. And it is Job himself who breaks the silence. And now we're reading the words of chapter 3, which are difficult words to read. We hear the cries of Job's heart put into words for us to understand. If there's anything that we learn about Job from this chapter is that he seems to have given up all but just a little bit of hope in this life. He curses his birth. He hates his life. He wants to die. And this attitude raises a question for all of us today. The question I want to address is life worth living? Why, if a man has about 80 or so years on this earth, filled with heartache and suffering, why even bother? What's the point? Is life worth living? It is this question that I aim to address this morning from the book of Job. And so let us come and ask God, the author of this text, for his help. Oh God, not all of us can resonate completely with the cries of Job, but help us understand. Help us understand that we might see the worthiness of the lives that you've given us and teach others also. Please use what seems like a very discouraging text to encourage your people this morning. And may you, O oh Lord, receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Is life worth living? Let me fit that against the backdrop of today's society. Even in our very wealthy, comfortable, convenient society, there are many people, perhaps in this room, perhaps relatives of yours, or co-workers, who are struggling with questions like these. Virtually all mental health experts believe that we are in crisis mode in our society. And there are many theories about why. It could be the pursuit of fame and money and pleasure. Combine that with a lack of sleep, poor work habits, inconsistency, social isolation. All of these things make recipe for depression discouragement, 
that's quite gloomy and dark. The percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime has reached nearly 10 percentage points higher than just a few years ago. The people who are being treated for this is going up, anxiety is going up, discouragement is going up. You and I live in a world, as we saw last week, that is selfish and cold. We also live in a world that is gloomy and depressed. And I'm not a mental health professional, no claim to be. And I don't deny the interplay between physiological factors that contribute to despondency and anxiety. But I think we all should be heartbroken to some degree that so many people struggle with trying to find meaning in life. Who are despondent, who are asking, what is the point? In America, there are 132 suicides every day. And these numbers continue to rise. And it doesn't help that we are in a world that does not value life like they should. A world that has rejected the image of God. We find this perhaps, most notably, in the tragedy of abortion. Abortion which devalues life. The most vulnerable among us, discarded by our society. The Guttmacher Institute gives us statistics of what are some of the reasons for abortion. And I'll just summarize some of these stats for you. But the two most common reasons, according to the survey, were Quote, having a baby would dramatically change my life, meaning interfere with work or education. And, quote, I can't afford a baby now. 74 or 73% of abortions are because of those reasons. Others may desire to avoid single motherhood. Some say they completed their childbearing. But very few say that it's because of health, whether of a child or the mother. So I understand that our society right now, especially in the political arena, are debating about pro-life and pro-choice causes and to what degree the health of the mother and the health of the child. But do you understand that that is a, such a little percentage of why people get abortions? Our society is saying that your work and your, 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 your education and your finances are more important because we don't value life like we should. It's one way that our society is saying life is just not worth the struggle. It's not worth bringing someone into this world that will not only be inconvenienced, but inconvenience me, and thus we throw it away. Now these are heavy topics, brothers and sisters. But there may be times in your life as a Christian where you also wonder, what's the point? I know for me, in my teenage years, which I think was right on the precipice of when I, I really owned Christ and the gospel for myself, I went through a period of time where I was extremely morbid, like annoyingly morbid, like asking my mother, why bother taking the garbage out? We're all going to die anyway. Sort of and perhaps you can relate to something like that. Is life worth living? Such attempts to answer that question from psychology or philosophy 
might give us some insight, but they will ultimately fall short. We must go to the giver of life to understand the answer to this question. But before we get there, it's important for us to not skip this very difficult chapter. The Lord has brought us to the book of Job, and we need to understand the words of his heart and how in any way we might relate and how God ultimately resolves this question. Like I have been saying throughout the series, when I say resolves the question, I do not mean that God is going to give us a cute little answer that we can just bring out anytime you or anyone is discouraged, but the Bible points us to truths beyond our circumstances that give us light for our days of darkness. Well, Job is obviously experiencing a lot of darkness here. We are in part four now of our study of the book of Job. He breaks his silence with lament. Strong, loud, sad, sorrowful, despondent lament. I've taken an outline from the commentator Francis Anderson. It looks pretty much uh, like this. We're going to see that first in verses 1 to 10, Job curses his birth. Then he longs for his death in verses 11 to 19. He deplores or hates his life in 20 to 23. And then he groans in desperation, verses 24 to 26. Can I just pause for a second and remind you? We say joy to the world. There is joy. So stick with me here. Don't be discouraged by this. Don't think you came to church today just to hear a morbid sermon and go home depressed. But we cannot skip this because remember, Job resonates with the human condition. Job says the quiet part out loud. You will see questions that perhaps you've asked. And if you've never asked these questions, there are people in your life that you and I need to minister to. And part of that is understanding their heart. And so at the very least, may the Lord give us that understanding that He help us to enter in and may help us to resonate with this text. Job chapter 3 has been called a brilliantly apt prelude to everything that follows. You have to understand this chapter to get the rest of the book. And it is in the pain that ultimately opens us to who we truly are. You see, we're getting a glimpse inside Job's heart here. We're hearing him. What does he really think? about all the suffering. Remember, his children are dead. His estate has been taken away. His reputation is gone. His health is failing and fading. He's emaciated and itchy and painful. And he can't sleep and rest. How would you respond? How would I respond? Well, beginning with verses 1 to 10. And I'm going to let Moses just simply speak for itself. Job curses his birth. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Then Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars 
of its dawn be dark, but it hoped for light but have none, nor see the islands of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job is celebrating the opposite of a birthday, isn't it? Those of us who have had children or have close people to us who've had children, you know the celebrations that ensue when you find out someone is expected. The celebrations that ensue when birth has finally come. The baby showers, the presents, the decorations. Especially in the ancient Near East, where, where bringing forth your, your progeny and your, your lineage was, was so important. Celebrations of birth color all of history. And Job is basically saying, that day that I was born is a curse. Let there be no celebration. I wish it never happened. Robert Feil, in his commentary, calls this a reverse creation. If you were to take verses 1 to 10 and compare it to Genesis, where God, where God says, let there be light, Job is saying, take that light and make it go. Where God calls out all the stars by name and creates the, the heavenly host, Job is saying, I wish every star was nothing but blackness. Job is basically here asking that his name be erased from the record books. Let it not count. Undo what has been done. Either mourn my birth or erase my birth, but I don't want to think about my birth. It is a time for mourning and not celebration. Secondly, he then longs for his death. He says in verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. If you've ever known the heartache of a miscarriage or a stillborn, or you know people who have, this man is asking for that. That's how despondent he is. Verse 12, Why did the knees receive me? For why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and quiet, I would have slept, and I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves, or with princes with gold who filled their houses with silver. For why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest, there the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. The slave is free from his master. Job is at a point where he thinks the only freedom from his problems is death itself. In some ways, Job here is questioning what God has done. Why me? Why was I born? Why did I have a mother? Why these circumstances? He is questioning the place he was born, the way in which he was born, the circumstances under which he was born, and the time in which he was born. And he longs for the only escape that would provide rest for him, which is death. Now, it must be pointed out that in all of this, Job never considers suicide. It would be wrong to say that Job was suicidal. Job is placing his life in the hands of God, and he wishes that God would crush him, but he doesn't lift a finger to crush himself. 
There's another uh, verse here in chapter 6 where he says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Even his wife, when she said earlier, curse God and die, that was an invitation not for Job to kill himself, but to have God kill him. So he recognizes that God is the author of life and does not have a desire to kill himself, yet wishes that God would do the job for him. As John Hartley says, suicide was not acceptable for a person of faith because it signified that one had lost all hope in God. Having this strong conviction, Job could seek relief from his pain and death only through having the day of his birth removed from time or prompting God to send him to Sheol. That tells us that in the fact that Job stops short of suicide, that he hasn't lost all hope. If I could just pause here for a moment and say, you know, it's never easy to talk about suicide. But since I brought it up, I must say, if you have ever entertained thoughts, please seek help. Seek help from brothers and sisters, and seek professional help. It is not something that you want to play around with. Job hates his life. A life that was colored by prominence, wealth, a beautiful and big family, he now hates his life. Verse 20 says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He really wishes that he wasn't alive. In Job chapter 7, I have it on the screen, you don't have to turn there. It says, when I say my bed will come for me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. You see, you might say to Job, just get some rest, right? Maybe you feel that way sometimes, overburdened, and you might just lay on the couch for a little bit, and go to get a good night's rest. Job says, even there I can find no rest. Because I get scared with dreams and visions. So in verse 15, I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. And he says, I loathe. That means I hate. I deplore. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are in my The very last part of Job's speech here in chapter 3 ends with a groan of desperation. He says, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. And this verse just shows you what, what's going on in his heart. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble Job is groaning in desperation. And I think the hardest part for Job is that
that he believed that God had done this to him without cause. Remember, you and I, we know more than him. The narrator of Job tells us in chapter 1, this is Satan's doing, and that God is pleased with Job. Job's unaware of that. And he knows that God is sovereign, and so there's a part of him that just, I wish I could talk to God and plead my case. But think about what Job is going through as he reminisces about his life. He has obeyed God. He has believed God. He has sacrificed to God. And now he feels alone and abandoned by God. Thrown away by God. As Richard Belcher said, suffering can change a person's perception of life and God. And I wonder, whatever Job thought about God was starting to change. So what we read here is the groanings of a confused, lonely, suffering heart. A heart that is discouraged. A heart that is despondent. And I ask you, my brothers and sisters, can you relate to this? Even if at all? Just a little bit. Have you ever been there? In your depression or discouragement? Or perhaps no others who have? Who are asking this question? What's the point? Is life worth living? I want to encourage you that I believe that there's evidence that Job was holding on to hope. And I want to encourage you to hold on as well. Job might have felt that his death would be better than his current condition. And Job might long to rid himself of this pain, which is understandable. But I submit to you that he never ultimately lets go of hope. Oh, sure, his agony might outweigh his hope, but his hope is still there. See, the human heart is very dynamic and complex, isn't it? More than one thing can be true about us at any given time. I can say three things about Job's heart. One, he wanted to alleviate his suffering with death. True. Secondly, he was unwilling to entertain the idea of killing himself. And thirdly, he held on to a hope that one day God would vindicate him. And we're going to see that throughout the book. Brothers and sisters, as long as there is hope, there is reason to press on. And for Job, though he was driven to despair, as we study this discourse and it carries on, we find that he had hope. However small, however dim, he had hope that one day God would make this right. What is hope, by the way? I know we use that word in the world in all different ways, like, I hope to win the lottery. I hope my team will win the championship. I, I hope, and that's, that's more like a, like a wish, right? But biblical hope is the expectation that a desire will be fulfilled. And your hope increases based upon the character of the one who promised the expectation. We all know what this is like in life. There are people that we know that are men or women of their word. 
And then there are people who are flaky. And people who are flaky who tell you, I will be there, I will do this, and they don't do this, we begin to trust them less and less. The people who are faithful, we trust that whatever they say will come to pass. And yet, even the most faithful human being falls short because we're all sinners who are imperfect. But if God is the one who's giving us a promise, hope means that we know we may not have extreme confidence, our faith may waver, but we know, we trust, we anticipate that He will fulfill His promises. That hope may not always be confident, that hope may not always be joyful, but it is there. And I believe that hope was there for Job. So let me go through a few other chapters here. In chapter 13, he says this. After speaking back and forth with his friends, he says, Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Did you see the complexity here? Why I have been trying to communicate from day one that this is not your typical Sunday school pop apologetic stuff that you just put on a bumper sticker, right? You've got to think here. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though God take my life from me, Though God allowed me to walk through this awful suffering, I will still hold out some hope. And the hope that Job says he has is that he will argue with God to his face. That's kind of crass to say it that way, right? But well, think about what he's saying. He's saying that I hope there will be a time where I can plead my case before the face of God. Job thinks he will see God. That's huge. And for the person who thinks that they will see God, that adds a whole new meaning to life, doesn't it? You will be able to see and communicate with God. Job understands that he is dying if God doesn't intervene. But he still has his hope. Now our hope is only as strong as the object of our hope. Like I said, it's not about I hope my team wins the championship. I hope we win. I hope to get that job. I hope it all works out. But rather, something was promised to me by someone I trust and I have hope that it will come to pass. And because we have hope, we can wait for something with eager anticipation. Who is the object of Job's hope? I hope, no pun intended, that's obvious to you. That's God himself. And as I've been pointing out each and every week, we talk about the God who made the stars, and the God who rules the seas, and the God who draws near. I want to focus today on the God of hope. Because this is exactly not just what we need, but who we need. 
when we feel the sorrow of suffering in this world, we need hope. And hope is not ultimately found in your health, or in your family, or in your circumstances, or in your finances, because these things are fleeting and will fail you. Your hope is in God. And if there's one thing that Job knew, as imperfect as theology, was that there was reason to hope in God. In Job chapter 19, which I want to focus on for the next few moments, Job is still lamenting, but he's giving us glimmers of the hope that he has. He says in verse 20, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And I believe that is a play on words to refer back to chapter 2, where Satan said, skin for skin. It's as if the author of Job is saying that Satan has done his work thoroughly in Job's life. But then Job says, in verse 21, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, my God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job's words are in a book that we're reading right now. But Job believed that he was innocent. He wants to plead his case. And as one commentator says, he wishes his words were inscribed in a medium that was as solid as God himself. And why? Why, after all God has done, after the, the this is chapter 19 at this point, so he's heard from Eliphaz a few times, he's heard from Bildad, he's heard from Zophar, he's pled his case over and over again. Why would he still hold out hope that he can plead his case with God? Well, because of the next verse, which you know, which says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job had hope because he knew there was an advocate. He longed for this advocate. Now, I don't pretend to believe that Job had a Christological theology. He doesn't know what we know. But he trusts in the character of God. Amen. And he trusts that God is going to make things right. And that God lives. And will one day stand on the earth. And it's interesting here that he uses the word Redeemer. I have a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you from a study Bible that says this about Redeemer. This word in Hebrew for Redeemer, it's a well-known word. It's the same word used for the kinsman Redeemer in the book of Ruth. The, the kinsman Redeemer was one who would pay off the debts of another, defend the family, avenge a killing, marry the widow of the deceased. The word here, Redeemer, evokes a connotation for people familiar with the New Testament. But perhaps a better translation would be vindicator that captures the idea that this Redeemer would justify Job in the eyes of God. A Redeemer who justifies Job in the eyes of God. You know anyone like that? You see the shadows of our Lord all throughout the book here? And the interesting 
point to be stressed is that Job has clearly said that he sees no vindication in this life, that he's going to die, yet somehow he knows that he will be vindicated, even though he will die, his Redeemer, or his Vindicator, lives. Awesome. This Redeemer must be someone whose voice carries weight in the heavenly court that can advocate for Job. Eric Orland says this is Job's great hope that his Redeemer, his Mediator, his Vindicator will repair the relationship between God and himself and bring the two of them together so that Job's deepest desire can be fulfilled and he can live under God's smile again. If Job's greatest problem wasn't that his family died or that his sores were itching. But his greatest problem was he felt the judgment of God, not knowing why. That his Redeemer will offer the solution he needs. His Redeemer will reconcile him to God. Job goes on to say, And after my skin has been thus destroyed. After I die, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. I believe that more than death itself, Job longed for something, and what he longed for was to see God. If I could just talk to God, if I could just meet with God, and there's some sort of hope that he will. Seeing God, brothers and sisters, seeing the living God is what makes life worth living. Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 42, 1-2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Job longs to see God. The psalmist longs to see God. And in the gospel, we are promised that we will see God. The climax of Job's story is that after God speaks to him, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. We will, of course, get to the place at the end of the book where Job has all of his family and fortune restored, but that's not the reward. That's a bonus. This is the reward. The reward is that Job gets to see God. The living God. I, my Redeemer lives. The gods of this world are dead. The idols are dead. The prophets are dead. We serve the living God. And though our flesh be destroyed, with our eyes we shall see. And that gives us meaning. That gives us purpose to know that whatever you are coming through, whatever suffering has taken place in your life, that the living God who made the stars has knitted you together in your mother's womb, has formed you for a purpose, 
and gives meaning to your life by walking with you through life. So much so that I could say that the person who doesn't believe in God cannot account for meaning in this life. You can't make sense of this world without God. Without God, we are just molecules sort of floating around together, live for a few years, make some contributions to this world, and we die, and that's it. But with God, there is meaning and purpose and a reason to bond and a reason to, to, to go forward and even press through the hardest of times. And I believe that the book of Job is there to show us that even the most extreme suffering does not take that away. And so, brothers and sisters, as always, we need gospel light for days of darkness. I've already sort of hinted at it, but how does this idea of a living Redeemer, the God of hope, point us to the gospel? How does that point us to the gospel? What Job only saw dimly, what do we see fully? When Job says, my Redeemer lives, I declare to you, on the authority of God's word, praise God, yes, he does. Our Redeemer lives, and His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the advocate that we need. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the vindicator who will justify us before God. That no matter what sins you have committed, if you are hidden in the Son, God sees you as He sees His Son. He justifies you before the living God, and not only pardons your sin, but brings you into a loving relationship with your Creator. And because on the third day after He died, Jesus rose again, I can say with confidence that your Redeemer lives. And that gives us hope. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is the great mediator and high priest, He experienced the groans of creation. We were talking about this last week, how God draws near to us, right? Jesus experienced a lot of what Job experienced. When Job is wondering, how, how can God do this to me? Do you know that on the cross, when Jesus felt the weight, not only of the nails in his hands, but the weight of our sins being poured upon him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the groans of a sin-cursed fallen world. And the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of this world, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. And because Jesus intercedes for us and redeems us, sets us free from the curse, he makes us right with God. As Romans 3.24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's a, a lengthy passage I want to share with you. We shared it actually on Monday night for those who were here. That tells us that we have a living hope in a living God because Jesus lives. And because he lives, we have reason to press on in this life. Peter, the apostle, is writing this to people who are also experiencing suffering. These are brand new Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And Peter doesn't say, you know, cheer up, it's all going to work out in the end. He doesn't give us some, some cute answer, some, some trite little expression to get them through the day. He grounds their hope in the reality that Christ has defeated death. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 9. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Never been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I think what Peter now says in verse 8 to the first century believers, in a sense, and he can also say to Job, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of faith and salvation of your soul. I understand that Job says in chapter 42, I've seen you with my eyes. We don't know exactly what that means. God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. Job saw something. We learn later, you know, in the Old Testament that no one can see God and live. So he didn't have the same kind of, he didn't see God as he will one day or, or is after his death. Not in that same sense, but he got a glimpse of God. Just like Isaiah did, just like Moses did. He got a glimpse of God. He saw something, some revelation. But not the fullness of it. And it's the same for us in the New Testament here. And as we believe upon Jesus Christ, we, we, we see with our heart. But one day, we will see face to face. One day, we will be like him as he is. Paul says we see right now through a glass dimly. But one day, we will be known by him, seen by him, loved by him. He will be our light. All the cares of this world will fade away. So what Peter is saying to these first century believers is, I know that you're going through tough times. I know you're going through persecution. But hold on to hope. Hold on to hope that God has reserved for you a place, an inheritance that's imperishable. It's waiting there for you. It will not die. It has no expiration date. And you will go there. And even though you don't see it with your eyes yet, you still love him because of the faith you have in him. And all of this, all of this, that's coming your way is true not because Peter said it. It's true not because it feels good. It's true because it is grounded in the reality of the resurrection of our living redeemer. And because he has risen, because he lives, these believers can press on. And I want to say the same is true for Job. As despondent and discouraged and as much as he hated his life, the reason Job never finally let go of that hope, he held on to that hope, maybe a grain of sand of hope, was because he believed that his Redeemer lived. He wouldn't be able to explain it like Peter could, or like we could, but he saw through a glass dimly, and he held on to that hope. And I want to encourage you then, brothers and sisters, that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. If God is a dead God, if we are just worshiping a myth, if this is all just historical blunder or something made up, if Christ was a great prophet who could not defeat death but ultimately died, it's true we would have no hope. 
And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is not risen, we are of most people to be pitied. Why did you get up today and come to church on a Sunday? This is your day off for most of you, right? Watch TV or something. Go bowling. Go out to eat. You can still go out to eat later. Get to Why dress up? Why sing songs? Why do we set up this projector? Why do people practice music? Why do we have communion? Why, why, why? Why are there choices in your life right now, financially, or about where you live, or what job you're going to take, or what you're going to study? Why do, why do you consult God and the Bible? to make choices in your life. Don't you know that's outdated? Just live life to the fullest. Just, you know, you only have, you know, 80, 90 years, maybe just... That's what the world's telling us, right? Seek pleasure, seek money, seek fame, seek likes, seek follows. And much of that would be true if Christ was still in the grave. But he's not. He is risen. And he is living and because he lives in him and through him, we have our being. Our existence is owed to him. And he has a future for us that is beyond expression and worth living for. As I close, I want to point out all of us will struggle with discouragement. There will be different levels. You may never, ever feel anything like what Job felt. And that's fine. But even kings, right? Psalm 42, verse 5, David says, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Even the, the great preachers like Charles Spurgeon was known for suffering from depression. Spurgeon said this, You may be surrounded with all the comforts of life, and yet being wretched is more gloomy than death. If the spirits are depressed, it means his own spirit. You may have no outward cause, whatever, for sorrow, and yet the mind is dejected. The brightest sunshine will not relieve your gloom. There are times when all our evidences get clouded and all our joys are fled. Though we may still cling to the cross, yet it is with a desperate grasp. I want to encourage anyone here who may feel that almost all hope is gone, that you would, like Spurgeon, cling to the cross, even if it's a desperate grasp. It's not the strength of your grasp. It's the fact that when there's a connectedness to God, He holds you. We were at a conference recently. Pastor Ed Moore gave an illustration. I don't have it in my notes. I'm probably going to butcher it. But I feel like fits so well that he was uh, kind of tempted into going on a, a ride in an amusement park. And he's not for rides. I, I'm the same way. I don't like heights. I don't want to go on these rides. But one of his kids sort of goaded him into to getting on the ride. And I don't know, you know, you get strapped in right, to these rides. And the, the big screw uh, kind of put the belt over you and, and all of that. And he was just sharing how as soon as the ride took off, he was extremely scared. And he held on to dear life. But the fact of the matter is, it didn't matter how much he held on. The reason why he was secure was because the device was made to be secure, to hold someone of his weight. And likewise, you might, you might hold on to, to your father's hand. You might be a little kid crossing the street. Who's really responsible for that kid making it across the street safely? The, the strength of the little kid's grip? Or the strength of the grip of the father alone? 
And so likewise, even if it's in desperation, hold on to hope. Hold on to God, because your Redeemer lives and he is for you. And as Jesus said, you are safe in his hand, and no one can pluck you out. But we do not want you to be, I'm sorry, we are afflicted in every way. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Life is worth living. Because all the circumstances that you and I go through are temporal. But there is something eternal prepared for us that is beyond comprehension and cannot be taken away. And how do I know it can be taken away? It's because Christ lives. It is placing our trust in the God of hope that makes life worth living. If you struggle with wondering if life is worth living, I encourage you, dear brother or sister, place your trust in the God of hope. If you have friends in your life who are struggling with whether or not life is worth living, tell them to place their trust in the God of hope. Without God, without hope beyond the grave, without the order and purpose that comes from a living and divine creator, then yes, life does seem meaningless. But there is a God, a living God, and all who have the Son of God have this God. And one day, one day we will get to see him. There is much suffering in this world. But thank God, that's not all that there is. Our Redeemer lives, and he will stand up for us. He saved us, he set us apart, and one day we will see him face to face. This is a promise to all who believe, written in the blood of our Redeemer, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And in this, no matter how tough it gets here, we have hope. And so I say with the psalmist, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil against me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Hope in the God of hope. He will never let go. He will never let you go. Take some time now in silent prayer before God, the God of